Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. The writer writes, and he says, Wherefore, seeing that we also are compassed or surrounded about with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Where we left off in our study of the book of Hebrews, the writer is likening the Christian life or the Christian walk unto a race. And he is giving to us some um, instruction and some practical advice as to the, um, the mindset and the lifestyle that it requires to live this Christian life and to live it for the long haul. And the purpose of this exhortation and this uh, um, metaphor of likening the Christian walk unto a race is, is not just to, to illustrate something, um, you know, in a flippant way, but his desire for us is that we would finish the race. Not just that we would run for a while uh, and understand what that means, but that we would ultimately come to the finish line and that we'd still be standing when we get there. And so he's giving to us in this portion of, of the letter uh, practical things to help us to be able to do that. And so uh, we saw last week that one of the things that, that, that he gives to us is that we can look to those who have already run this race and have completed it. That is, the great cloud of witnesses whose testimony is laid down in the Bible for us to look at and see how they ran their race and how they ultimately came to the finish line. And, and somewhere in the Bible, there is somebody that has gone through at some point, whatever it is that we go through at whatever point we're at in our Christian faith and life at that time. And in that, there's instruction, there's encouragement, and there's hope for us that we also can, can overcome, no matter what it is that we're going through. So we're to hear the testimony of those who have already run and finished. He also tells us there that we're to lay aside every weight, everything that will slow us down or tap our strength or keep us from being able to finish uh, in an effective way, or that may cause us to faint in the way that those things should be removed from our lives, even if those things are not uh, directly or specifically forbidden by God as things that are called sin. And every one of us has things in our lives that aren't wrong, they're not sin, but that we know are slowing us down from our pursuit of God. They're keeping us from knowing Him in the way that we could or from being fruitful and effective in the way that He would desire and that we would desire ultimately for our own lives. And so he says that we're to lay aside those things. The third thing he says is that we're to lay aside the sin. And sin is a disqualifier. We see uh, even in the accounts of Old Testament people how, how when sin was brought into the equation, there was the ruining of fruit. There was the, 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 the taking out of the race and going on to the sidelines. And thankfully, there's restoration and there can be forgiveness. Um, but sin is detrimental to the life of anyone who's seeking a life of holiness or a life uh, of pursuing God. And so we're to lay aside the sin. And then fourthly, he tells us that we're to run with patience. 
Because this race that we're in as Christians is not a sprint to see how quickly we can get to the finish line, but rather it's a marathon and it's something that we endure every day of our lives on this earth. And so because it's a marathon, it requires a different type of mindset than it would if it was just a sprint. If it was just a sprint, then 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 there would just be one burst of energy and you would train for that one burst of energy. You would give it everything you've got for that short period of time and then it would be done. But when it's a marathon... And when it's more specifically a lifelong marathon, then there's a lot more things than you've got that you've got to consider and weigh into the preparation and the training and the mindset. You've got to have long stamina because it's going to take a long time. You've got to account for the fact that there's going to be different types of terrain. Sometimes it will be smooth. Sometimes it will be sandy. Sometimes it will be uphill and jagged and rocky. And you've got to be prepared for all of those different types of terrains and elevations, ups and downs, hills and valleys, and understand that when you're running a marathon, that's part of the the, 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 the process of getting to the finish line is being able to endure through those different types of, of, of terrains. Also, weather. The weather can change in a marathon. It could start off and it's warm and sunny, and then halfway through it, you could have cold and rainy, and, 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 and you have to be prepared for that, that there's different seasons in the thing. There's elevation. There's an age factor that, that you actually are going to change age, and your life isn't going to be the way it is today in 10 years from now. And so you got to be prepared for that. And also, there's varying amounts of energy. When you start off in a race like a marathon, man, there's all kinds of energy. When you're close to the finish line of a race like a marathon, there's tons of energy. But when you're in the middle, there's times when there's highs and lows. There's times when you feel like you can't even take another step. And then there's times when you feel rejuvenated and you can keep going. And you've got to be prepared for that so that it requires patience. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And then he tells us, fifthly and finally, that our eyesight is to be set upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That where our eyes are set in this race, this Christian life, is of the utmost importance. And it's to be on Jesus Christ, and that is for three reasons. Number one is because he is the author of our faith. And in that he is the author of our faith, it is not a universal authorship, but it is an individual authorship. And what that means is that he knows the specific course that he has laid out for you. He knows how long you're going to be in this world. He knows every difficulty that this world is going to throw at you. He knows the dynamics of every day and of every situation and of every season of life that you will go through. He is the author of all of those things. And therefore, because he laid out the course for you, there is an abundance of help and guidance and direction that he can give you as you navigate those things. But our eyes must be upon him. He's the author. He's not just the author, but he is the finisher. And he is the finisher in that when he ran his race, he carried us over the finish line when he hung upon the cross. His victory on Calvary ensures our victory in our race and in our run. It is all performed of him, through him, and then ultimately for him. If our eyes are on him, he carries us across the finish line. 
And not only is he the author, not only the finisher, but thirdly, we're to look to him because he is our example. Notice what he goes on to say concerning Jesus in the second half of verse 2. Not only is he the author and the finisher of our faith, but it says there that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The example that Jesus gave to us when he lived his earthly life is that he endured suffering finished his course and obtained the prize. But he had to endure the shame and suffering of the cross in order to do that. He had a course and he finished it. And the thing that motivated Jesus to finish his race was the joy that was set before him. What motivated Jesus to endure the difficulties of his race was what? What was the joy that was set before Jesus? Well, when we look at his life, we see that the joy that Jesus was motivated by was, first of all, the joy of pleasing his father. He said, I do always those things which please my father. He was driven internally by the presence of his own spirit inside of him to glorify God in all that he did. In John chapter 17, that prayer that Jesus prayed that took takes the entire chapter of record in John's gospel. In verse 5, Jesus said, Father, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And now, and here it was, now glorify thou me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Jesus was motivated by the presence and the fellowship and the pleasure of his Father. He was also motivated by his quest and conquest to destroy death itself. That in his victory on the cross and through his own death, he destroyed the very power of death itself. And it motivated him to be able to be the hero and the victor over the plight of all of humanity, the thing of death. In that, he also obtained the redemption of man. He came in this world to lay down his life as a ransom for sinful fall in man. And it was the joy that was before him of being the one that would obtain that salvation that motivated him to live the sinless life and yet to die the sinner's death. He was motivated by his quest to redeem mankind. And ultimately, the joy that was set before him was the intimate relationship his cross would allow between himself and you personally. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter four, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, Paul actually prayed this prayer for the Ephesian church. He said this, praying for them. He said that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened or opened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That is, that you would understand how richly he treasures his inheritance, that is, you and me, those whom he died for and redeemed. That that was part of the joy that was set before Jesus Christ. That the reason why he endured his course and race, no matter how difficult it was, and ultimately the suffering and death of the cross, was so that he could have an intimate relationship with you. That was his glory. That was his joy. It was for the joy that was set before him. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us 
is he's saying, let these same things motivate you in your race to endure the suffering that your race will bring to you. Let it be your motivation to please the Father, to do what's right in his sight, to be redeemed and to be among the redeemed and to be in a personal and intimate relationship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. Notice that the joy that Jesus obtained was obtained through, not over, but through the pathway of suffering and shame. Notice again what it says there. It says, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured, that's a patience word, the cross, despising the shame. There was a shame that was brought upon him in taking the sins of the world upon himself. Not only the punishment for sins, but the guilt and the reproach of sins, all of that was laid upon him. And imagine for one moment how difficult it was for the Son of God, the light of the world, to become darkness and to be estranged from his Father. That all of the sins of the world, the filth of the world was laid upon him. There was a shame in that. And it required an endurance. But he endured it nevertheless as our example. And he obtained the prize. He is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Jesus' example to you and I as we run our race is the example of one who endured through suffering. The other part of the example that we're to follow as we look at Jesus is given to us in verses 3 and 4. And that is that not only did he endure the shame of the cross, but he endured the persecution from his enemies. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 3. He says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. For you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Just for a minute, consider, as the author bids us to do, the life of Jesus Christ. He came into this world as the God-man. He came as the perfect representation of the Father. John tells us that he was full of grace and truth. There was such a light and a magnetism that surrounded the Son of God that he attracted multitudes of people to himself wherever he went. He gave hope to those that were downcast. He healed those that were sick. He brought life and love to those that were languishing and dying. He lifted up the brokenhearted. He raised the dead to life. He cleansed lepers. I mean, he went about, as the Bible says, doing good, and he was good every day of his life. And yet, even though he was all of those things and did all of those things, he was constantly facing opposition from those that would seek to cast him down or crucify him or take him off the scene or discredit him in some way. He had to endure through the persecution of those that were opposing him, even though everything that he was doing was perfectly right according to the will of God and for the benefit of man. And yet he had to endure through that opposition. And now the writer says, look at the example of Jesus in that and consider your own life in the light of it. Now think about it. We want to do what's right in the sight of God. We know that we're sinners saved by grace and that there's nothing good in us. We seek to be conformed into the image of Christ and walk according to his will. We're walking away from the darkness of our past and towards the light of his will. That's the thing that we want for our lives. 
And yet we're persecuted for it. Jesus said, in this world, you shall suffer tribulation and persecution, right? Paul said, all those that desire to live godly in in lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And it's a fact of the Christian's experience. And it was an issue with the Hebrew Christians that are being addressed in this epistle. And it was part of the reason why they were turning away from Christ and going back under the covenant of Moses because of the persecution they were facing. And so he says, hey, listen, if you're under that kind of pressure from people, family members, work people that you work with, friends, people from your past, if you're under that kind of pressure that you should turn back from Christ because of the difficulty of it, consider Jesus, who though he was God, he endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, even to the point where he allowed his blood to be shed. And you haven't come to that point yet in your resistance to turn away from God and his will because of it. So look at Jesus and be encouraged. If he can do it and he's your helper and the author and finisher of your path, then you can do it as well. And so it was a necessary exhortation for these Hebrew Christians in that day that were being tempted to turn. But then as he moves on from here, he gives to them a another dimension as to why it is that they might be suffering some of the things that they're suffering. Not just the shame of being Christians in a fallen world, the shame that the world casts on it, that is. And not just the persecution that comes from those that uh, would, would, would uh, oppose the ways and, and the things of God. But there's another reason why the Hebrew Christians might be facing some of the difficulties that they're facing. And he goes on to explain that now In verse uh, um, 5, he says, And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children? My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now he's quoting there from Proverbs chapter three, verses uh, what is it, eleven and twelve. That's the exhortation that he's reminding them of. The words that were penned by Solomon, but that were ultimately inspired by the Spirit of God, and that speak beyond the Proverbs and into the lives of every son and daughter of God. He reminds us of the fact that one of the elements of our Life in this world is the discipline or the chastening of the Lord within our lives. What does it mean to be disciplined or chastened or chastised by the Lord? Well, the word in the Greek that's employed here by the Hebrew writer, it means the full preparation and training of a child. That's what the word implies. And what he's saying to us here is that God is not just our example and our guide, but he's also our father. This exhortation, it speaks to us as unto children. And what he's saying to us is that as our father, he is committed in our lives to making sure that we are fully trained and fully prepared for this life of godliness. And that that training and preparation requires at times correction or pain that he brings, that comes into our lives at his hand. 
And he tells us there that we're not to despise that chastening. That's in the exhortation. You've forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as children. Despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. So there's a couple of things that you need to know about the chastening or the preparation or the disciplining that God brings into the life of a Christian or into the life of a believer. First of all, you've got to realize that the chastening or the chastisement of God is motivated by his perfect love. The purpose for God's chastisement or correction or discipline in our lives is not punitive. It's not punishing us for the things that we do wrong, but rather it's corrective. It's in order to bring us off of a path that's ultimately going to lead to destruction or pain and to bring us back onto the path that leads to life. I have a very close friend in the faith and um, he, he's relatively close in my age and um, he was saved relatively close to the time that I was. And so we're going back about 15 years and things. And he tells the story of how when he was a new believer, there was a time that he was working on a job at an all-girls college. and He was doing construction there. And he was working in the indoor track building and he was repairing something and he was up on a very high uh, folding ladder. You know, it was like a 14-foot fold-out ladder. And it was a hot day. And, and he said that, you know, there was some, you know, female students that were there circling the track and he thought that he would just, you know, work it a little bit. And so he, you know, took off his shirt and he was in shape at that time and he was just working and he had his tools on and he was acting like it was just commonplace and the whole thing, but he knew what he was doing. And he climbed up on this ladder and he went a little too high. And while he was up high doing something, the ladder kicked out from under him and he fell and toppled And this whole ladder and everything that he was doing just crashed to the ground right in front of him. And he became like the, the laughing stock of that place at that moment, you know, amongst all the people that were looking. And he says, you know, that happened to me. And he said, I never felt more loved by God at any other time in my Christian life than when that happened to me that day. I knew that that was the chastisement of God. I knew that I was under his discipline when he allowed that that ladder to just kick out and for me to lose my balance and, and things because I was behaving in a way that wasn't right. And he said, but I didn't feel like God was punishing me. I felt like God loved me. He was involved within my life and he was stopping me from doing something that was foolish and was very much a misrepresentation of his person and of his character and what becomes a Christian man. And he said, I learned from that, but I was loved through that. And God's correction is always motivated by love. You'll notice also, as he talks about the chastisement of the Lord, is that it's universal. He says, my son, don't faint when you are rebuked of him. Do you see that word when? He doesn't say if, he says when. Because it's a universal fact that if you are a child of God, in some form or manner in time, you are going to endure the chastisement or the discipline or the correction of God. It's something that will happen to every one of us as we walk with the Lord. The third thing that he, te- that, that he tells us in this passage concerning the chastisement of God is that it produces a healthy fear of God in our lives, which tends to life. Notice in verse 7 what he says. He says, if you endure chastening, then God deals with you as with sons. 
For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and you are not sons. Furthermore, he says, we have all had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? In other words, every one of us knows what it's like to be chastened by our earthly parents or our earthly father. And we know what it produced within our lives. It produced in us a reverence, a respect, a healthy fear of their authority and an obedience to the boundaries that were set by them. And so part of God's objective in exposing us to his chastisement in our lives, when it comes, according to his perfect knowledge, is to produce in us a godly fear. And the fear of God is a good thing. It produces and tends towards life. When a person lacks or loses the fear of God, they're on a destructive path and it's only a matter of time before their life becomes a train wreck. We must know the love of God within our lives. That must be foundation. But the fear of God is essential. That we understand that we're walking with a holy and living God and that he is to be revered and respected in all things. And so his discipline produces that healthy fear of God. We also see in the passage here that through God's discipline, we learn holiness or God-likeness. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 10. He says, For they, our earthly parents, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. In other words, the chastening of our parents oftentimes was because they were embarrassed by our behavior. They were doing it for themselves so that they could save face, but not with God. He says, but he does it for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness or of his character, his attributes or his God-likeness. God uses his chastisement in our lives to bring changes in our lives that are going to be for our benefit and for our blessing. Now, sometimes the chastisement of God within our life is absolute correction. We're going the wrong way and we need the spiritual spanking, as it were, you know, that God might bring us back onto the path that we're on. We see that very much in, in the life of King Saul. We're studying uh, King Saul and King David on Saturday mornings in discipleship. And throughout the life of Saul, we see this correction, discipline coming from God, seeking to bring Saul back onto the right path. God using all sorts of means to try to get his attention and bring him back. But at the same time, God is chastening Saul with correction to bring him back. He's also chastening David, but it's not correction, it's preparation. He's chastening David so that David will be raised up to be the kind of king that will rightly represent God. Both men are being chastened, but from completely different angles. One to be corrected, one to be prepared. And we face those things, but ultimately it's for our good either way, either to bring us back to the right path or to prepare us for what it is that God yet has for us. So we learn holiness and God-likeness through it. And then finally, concerning the discipline or chastening of God, is that it works. <laughs> it says in verse 11, he says, Now no chastening 
for the present time seems to be joyous, but grievous. None of us, when we're going through it, are happy about the things that we're feeling or the the difficulty of those uh, circumstances that God is allowing to train us or correct us. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. When we come through on the other side of the discipline, there's a peace that exists within our heart and more so there's a righteousness because God is very effective through his discipline of bringing forth in our lives the things that need to be brought forth in our life. I remember the first time I was exposed to this passage, I was about two weeks old in the Lord. And I had just gotten saved. It was a week before starting my second year in college. And uh, I, I went back to school and I was very much mixed up with the world at that time in my life, even coming to Christ. And I was living with a bunch of guys that were like my party friends that were left over from my freshman year. And I was just brand newly saved. And I remember coming back to school and thinking, God, I don't know how I'm going to navigate this. I want to be a Christian. I want to follow you. But I'm not strong enough to stand up against the current that we were all flowing in at the end of last year. And so sure enough, I go back to college and that first week I'm pulled right back into that college culture that I had left a few months previously and that I no longer wanted in my life, but I didn't know how to get victory over it. And I remember on, on, a, on a day, I just was walking through the campus by myself and I said, God, I don't want these things in my life anymore, but I'm not strong enough or able to get them out of my life. But if you take them out of my life, I'm willing that they would be gone forever. Well, I came back into my dorm room from the walk while I was praying that prayer. And as they knocked on the door, they said health and safety inspections. And they came in the room and our room was filled with all kinds of things that weren't allowed or supposed to be in the room. And would you know that health and safety inspector played me like a, like a cat plays with a mouse. She found all these things in the room and played so dumb like she didn't know what any of them were. And then she said, I just have to you know, do something for protocol. I'll be right back. I said, sure, no problem. She came back with campus security and I was arrested because of the things that they found within my room. And I got put into the back of the campus police car and humiliatingly driven around to where the campus police station was on the campus. And they took me in and they chained me to a, a post in the ground and I was sitting there and I had a smile on my face that almost <laughs> hurt. It was so big. And they said, are you on drugs? And I said, no, I'm absolutely not. And they said, well, what is it? And I said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And they said, try. And I said, okay. I said, I just prayed this afternoon that God would take these things out of my life. And this is the answer to that prayer. And so, you know, we go through the formalities and the whole thing. And I remember leaving that situation and I called Georgia, who was kind of the one who led me to Christ. She was just my friend at the time. Now she's my wife. She was up at her college, up at Potsdam. I was six hours south of her. And I told her everything that happened with shame, but I had to, I had to lay it out. It had to be in the light. And I told her. And she said, get your Bible. And she said, open to Hebrews 12. And she read me this passage. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you're rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and reproves everyone whom he receives. She said, walk through this as a Christian. And I remember going to that hearing and, and I told the judge exactly what I told the people in the police station. I said, I prayed that God would take this out of my life and this was the means whereby he did it. 
And where everyone else was charged with something, he said, case dismissed. And God gave me favor in it. And he took those things out of my life forever. His chastisement is effective when he brings it within our life. It's not to harm us. It is ultimately for our good. Now, intertwined in this passage of scripture on the chastening of the Lord is a very important and necessary principle for us as fathers as it relates to our responsibility and charter in raising our children. And that is the importance of correction and the importance of discipline and preparation in our raising of our kids. It is very in vogue in these days or popular for a parent to befriend their kid, to try to meet with them on their level and to kind of be their friend. Rather than reproving or correcting or disciplining or chastising them, we should use psychological techniques like redirecting their focus if they're doing something that they're not supposed to do. If we don't like what they're doing, then rather than tell them that's wrong, which could bruise their self-esteem, Rather, we should just suggest that they do something else that's more positive or more, uh, you know, lively in these these types of things. And 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 there's a place for that. There absolutely is. But the problem with leaving off correction and chastisement as it relates to our children is that it doesn't teach our kids, that is the psychological things, the importance of boundaries or obedience. Those things are absolutely necessary. There is a strange and rare birth defect that can happen in a human life physiologically. It actually has a name. It's called congenital insensitivity syndrome. And it hits about one in every one million babies that are born. But it's a defect in a gene wherein there's no feeling or sensation at all in the nerve endings anywhere in the body of that human being, human body. And you would think, how awesome would it be to be able to live a life on earth in a body that cannot feel physical pain? And you think, that would be great. Here's the problem. By the time a a common person with that uh, syndrome, congenital sensitivity syndrome, reaches the age of five, they have almost no tongue left because they chew their tongue and they can't feel the pain of it and they chew it to the point where it's completely destroyed. Most of them, by the time they're 10, their fingers are nothing left but nubs because they touch hot things. Some put their hands in boiling water. They don't feel anything. Their lips, their nose, all of their outward extremities become eventually invisible because they they, they don't know the boundaries that pain in the human physiological makeup is intended to speak. It's to say, stop. It's to say, you're doing something harmful in this. And God intended pain to be something that would help us to associate negativity with boundaries so that we wouldn't do things that would ultimately destroy our lives. Pain is intended to teach and pain is extremely effective. Why are animals held in with electric fencing? Because it hurts, right? Just about a year ago, it really was just about a year ago, we were sitting at our our kitchen table. Um, and, and last year was kind of a mild winter, so we had the, the, the dining room door open just a little bit to let air in. And as we were there, I heard a noise in the backyard that sounded honestly like deer mating. 
It was just like this crazy sound of like snorting and, you know, bucking and different things that were happening. And I was like, what in the world is that? And it didn't go away. So we're sitting at the table and I said, I've got to know. So I went out back with a flashlight and, and I put it in the backyard and I heard this sound, sound like a deer. It said, pervert. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, I, I actually couldn't see anything with the flashlight. So I went and got a stronger light. And, and when I put it in the backyard, I couldn't see what it was, but I could see the reflection of many eyeballs. And I thought, well, this is extremely interesting now. So I put my boots on and my jacket, and I went outside for a closer look, and, and I saw, and again, I could just see that the eyes, but they were set so far apart, I thought, that doesn't look like deer. What is there, moose in my backyard? What in the world is this? It was a herd of cattle, okay? Seven. Seven cows in my backyard. Now, there is no farm. The closest farm to me is about a, a half a mile or more down the road. And it's on the opposite side. And it's just like this little stall you know, of things. And then there's houses that line up both sides of the road. So I'm thinking, how in the world did seven cows end up in the middle of my backyard? Well, it turns out the farm that was a half mile down the road, something spooked the cows and there was no electric fence. So the cows plowed through the boundary, ran half a mile down the road, made a left in my driveway because that's the only way to get into my backyard, walked down past my house, and they were grazing in my backyard. And I thought, what in the world is this? So I got in touch with the farmer, and at 9.30 that night, me and my son Rocky and these two farmers were herding cattle out of the woods. You know, It was the craziest thing in the world. Well, what's the point? The point is this is that when, when, there, when there's no boundaries or when boundaries aren't, aren't learned and observed, then cows and Christians end up in places where they're not supposed to be. And that can be an extremely harmful thing. Now, as it relates to us as parents, the Bible talks about the importance of our disciplining or chastising our kids. I think it's something like six times in the book of Proverbs, it talks about the rod of correction or of disciplining our children, chastening them while there's hope and this type of thing. And I don't want to go too far down this road because I know it can be painful for some because of the way that this can be abused and is abused constantly uh, in households and in in families and in places, uh, and it's very common. But I want to tell you tonight the importance as parents of disciplining our children when the occasion uh, deserves it or needs it. Georgia and I had a very good pastor in our first church when we first got saved. And he had a a very healthy family. He had four children that were all walking with the Lord. He was very level-headed and sober. And when we first got married and, and started forming a family, he talked to us about the importance of this. And he laid a very good foundation for us. And so before we even had kids, we sat down together and we talked about how it is that we want to train up and raise our kids. And we decided that we would use use a spoon and that we would give a a spanking when it was merited, but that we would do it with these parameters in mind, is that number one is that the purpose of it was never to execute or alleviate our wrath upon a child because we're frustrated or angry. We decided that if there's any hint of anger or frustration in us at all, we won't do it until later or we'll yield to the other one who who has their emotions in control. It will never be an emotional response, but rather it will be done out of fact. Second of all, that it wasn't done primarily for the sake of pain, but for the sake of shock and humility 
and an open door to explain, that it would be done with explanation and with love and with prayer and with restoration, and that it would be a process that would take time and not something that's done reactively or, or, or flippantly, but that it would be done with purpose and with intention. We also decided that we would be uni, uh, um, what's the word? unified absolutely as parents in what our standards were for our kids. We, we never wanted to give them place wherein they would be able to play good cop against the bad cop. Well, we know that dad is stricter than mom. And so we'll do these things around mom or we'll play them against one another in such a way that we can get away with everything and we don't have to worry about it because they'll, we'll get them fighting with each other rather than worried about what we're doing. We just never wanted that to happen. So we decided we're going to be on the same page concerning the things concerning uh, our kids and the disciplining of our kids and all of that kind of thing. And so we, we enacted that through the years and we've seen good fruit from it in the lives of our children. Never once abusing them or bruising them or in some way bringing harm into their lives, but seeking to let them know what the boundaries are and that there are consequences if they cross it. Because why? Because their future is at stake. They have to live in a society where there are very real boundaries. Someday we're going to release them and they're going to be in a marriage where there's boundaries in a marriage and they've got to know that boundaries need to be respected. They're going to live in a society and they're going to have jobs or careers wherein they're going to have to know what it means to respect people and to do what's right. Hopefully they'll have a relationship with God. And they're staying in the narrow way and they're doing what's right, but they know what the boundaries are and they understand these things. And so we want to look past the here and now or even the voices that come at us from the outside and we want to do things the best we can in God's way with God's heart in order to give our kids the best we can for their future. So these are the principles I would give to you as parents that, that we seek. We're not perfect, believe me, by any stretch, nor are we done. Our oldest is 15. The jury is way still out on things. So don't look at me. I'm just giving you God's word, you know. Unity in, parent, in, in parenting is absolutely essential. Very important. Number two, if you're not right with God as a parent, don't expect that your kids are going to be right with you. Our relationship with God is very important in our raising up of them. Number three, they have a will and a personality which makes life interesting. So hold on and pray for wisdom because dealing with lives requires wisdom. And then number five, and this one's free, you will never regret teaching your kids the Bible. You will never regret taking the time to bring your kids through the word of God and to lay down the spiritual principles of God's truth to them. You will never regret that. You will regret it if you don't. Even if they turn out okay, you'll say, I wish I had taken more time to give my kids spiritual things and spiritual truth. Well, back to Hebrews. Congenital sensitivity syndrome. It only happens to one in a million humans on the physical plane, but it happens to every single person spiritually. We are all born into this world with congenitive sensitivity syndrome spiritually. You know why? Because the Bible teaches that when we come into this world, we are spiritually dead. And thus we have no feeling 
for the damage that's being done spiritually because of the sins of our lives. But the good news is this. When we become children of God and we're born again, the Spirit of God comes into our life and the nerve endings, as it were, of our conscience and of our spirit are renewed. And thus the discipline and the chastisement of God begins within our lives. And know this, He is only good. And whatever circumstances or difficulties He brings into our lives by way of His discipline, it is for our profit. And what His resume is to be our Father is this is that he came into this world, lived in human flesh, felt everything that we feel. He knows everything it is to be a human being. He faced every temptation that we faced. And it is from that platform that he institutes his fathering hand within our lives. He's not pontificating as one who doesn't know. He knows the feeling of our infirmities. And he does it with love and he does it with wisdom. And so the writer of Hebrews exhorts concerning his discipline. Now, verse 12. In light of the discipline of God in your life, when it happens, and it will, he says, wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame is turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Listen, when you endure the difficulties that God brings in by way of chastisement or discipline within your life, there's going to be a temptation for you to become discouraged and to shy away from God, to grow cold and distant towards Him. Well, God, I don't like the way that you're dealing with me in this. What the author is saying is don't do that. He's saying lift up your hands, speaks of prayer. Strengthen your knees. Don't become distant from God. He's saying make straight paths for your feet. Get Back in the way of understanding. Let the correction do its work within your life. Why? So that that which is lame can then be healed. That's ultimately God's will. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, which is what the Hebrews were doing. They were failing of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. You become bitter at God because you don't like the things that are happening in your life. It spills over and it becomes bitterness towards men and towards people because of the things they're doing that you don't like within your life. And bitterness spreads and it becomes bitter around you. Everything in life becomes bitter. He's saying don't let that happen in your life. He's saying also... Take courage, lest, verse 16, there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat, one bowl of soup on a day that he was hungry, sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance though he sought it carefully with tears. Now the story concerns Jacob and Esau, who were twins, but Esau was the older. He was the firstborn, and he was born first of the two, of him and Jacob. And thus as the firstborn, he was the one that was entitled to inherit the promise of the blessing. The firstborn would inherit a double portion, which was the blessing, But they also inherited a responsibility. 
And that responsibility is that they were to look to the spiritual well-being of the family after the passing of the parents. So there was a blessing and a responsibility attached to being the firstborn, and it was a high privilege. But Esau was never concerned about spiritual things. He didn't care about the spiritual well-being of his own soul or of the future of his family. He was only concerned about himself. The Bible says that Esau was a man of the earth. Jacob, on the other hand, the younger, he was very much concerned with the spiritual. He was very much concerned with the future and what God had in store for the future of his family. And so Esau came in on a certain day after hunting and he said, Jacob, make me some of that soup that you know I like. And Jacob said, oh, you want some soup? He goes, I'll tell you what, let's make a deal. You sell me the birthright of being the firstborn, transfer to me that privilege, and I'll make you a bowl of the soup that you like. And Esau said, what's the birthright to me? I'm at the point of weariness and death. Make me the soup, I'll sign. And so Jacob says, good, got it. Jacob cared about the condition, what was to come in the future. Well, time passes and the boys grow older. Isaac comes to the point where he's about to die. And he calls Esau in and he says, Esau, go out and make some food and then bring it back that my soul might bless you before I die. I'm going to give to you the birthright. And Esau goes out and Rebecca, Isaac's wife, says, Jacob, quick, come in. He goes, come on. And she cooks a lamb. She cooks it the way Isaac likes it. And she dresses him with hairy fur so that he'd feel like Esau. And then she says, now go in, tell your father your name is Esau, give him this food and let him bless you. So Jacob. And he comes in and he goes, hello, dad, it's me, Esau. You know, and he brings in the food and, and Jake, uh, Isaac goes, sounds like Jacob. Come here. Touches him. His eyes aren't working right. Touches him and he says, well, I hear Jacob, but I feel Esau. Must be Esau. Eh, you know. So he eats the food. He blesses Jacob, gives to him the birthright, the double portion, the heritage, the spiritual future of the nation that it will ultimately become. And as soon as he finishes giving the blessing, Esau comes in with the food that he had caught and prepared. And Isaac panics and he says, well, wait a minute. If you're Esau, then who did I just bless? And everything came into the light. Everybody knew what everybody else did at that moment. And it tells us there that Esau then at that point said, no, 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 father. No, 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 no. Bless me. Father, have you but one blessing? Bless me, even me. And it says that he wept. He wailed at that point because he realized at that point what he had lost. But it was too late. Isaac said, I've given him all. I've given him corn, wine. I've made you his servant. I've given him everything. There's nothing left for me to give you, my son Esau. And he wept and cried with tears, but he did not find place for repentance. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us here is that it is possible for you and I to become so concerned with the here and now that we forfeit the birthright of what's been given to us in Christ then by living such earthly and godless lives that we forsake what awaits us in time to come. The issue concerning Esau's repentance was not that it was an unforgivable sin. It was the timing with which he sought repentance. That was the issue. He sought repentance after it was too late. 
The blessing had already been given away and therefore there was no room for him left to repent. So you say, well, how does that apply to us in terms of what the author of Hebrews is saying? He's saying, listen, he's saying you have been given a calling in Jesus Christ. You have a birthright because you're associated with him wherein your names are written in heaven and you're going to have eternal life there. Your glory is there. Your peace is there. Your kingdom and crown is there, not here on this earth. And for you to turn your back on Christ today because you say, what good is heaven to me there then when I'm suffering here and now? He's saying if you make that decision And then one day you stand before him and you say, wait a minute, I made a mistake. I wasted my life. I turned away from you then because I was concerned about this there then. Bless me, even me. He's going to say, I'm sorry. But all manner of sin would have been forgiven you while you were there. But it is appointed once for a man to die. And after this, the judgment. And you failed to live for me and to receive my gift of your salvation or of this salvation in your lifetime. It's too late for you to be forgiven now. It isn't the issue in any one of our lives that our sins can't be forgiven. Our sins can be forgiven. The question is, are we willing to lay them down at the foot of his cross and have them be washed away? That's the issue. And if not, then for us to one day see the glory that was awaiting us all that time, and to think that we can obtain it then by repenting then, you cannot repent then. Esau was turned away. Don't fail of the grace of God. Don't turn your back on Jesus Christ, no matter how difficult the situation is that you're facing. Now he gives the illustration. Here it is. Verse 18. He says, For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. He's talking about Mount Sinai. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they heard, or they that heard, entreated that the word should no more be spoken to them. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that even Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. He's talking about a relationship with God that's based upon the Mosaic covenant of Mount Sinai. If you want to have that kind of a relationship with God, wherein God is the God of the Old Testament, the God of do's and don'ts, the God of the law and the ritual, then you're going to have a God who is merely physical and not spiritual. You're going to have a God who's obscure. It's shadowed and darkened with clouds. You're going to have a God who's unwelcoming, That even if you hear his voice, you won't want to hear it anymore because it will produce fear in you. You'll have a God who's untouchable because if you get too close in your sinful state, you'll be killed. No man can see God and live. And you'll have a God who strikes fear within your heart. And that's the overarching principle that guides your knowledge of who he is. Fear. That's all Mount Sinai could ever bring to any of God's people. And if you choose to go the way of Esau or to turn your back on him, then that's all you'll ever have in this life as it relates to your relationship with God is a physical, obscure, unwelcoming, untouchable, fearful relationship with God. On the other hand, verse 22, he says, but you are come to Mount Zion 
and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood spoke of vengeance. The blood of Christ speaks of mercy and forgiveness. He's saying, listen, if you come to to Zion, if you'll have a relationship with God based on grace through Jesus Christ, then you obtain the city of the living God. It's yours. You obtain the heavenly Jerusalem. You're already citizens there an innumerable company of angels, the general assembly in church. Your names are written in heaven. You come to God, the judge of all, the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the covenant, and to the blood that takes away all our sins. The choice is with you as to what you would have. Therefore, verse 25, closing, he says, See that you refuse not him that speaks. Now, This is the concluding statement to what began in chapter 1, verse 1. In chapter 1, verse 1, the author said, God, who in diverse ways and at diverse times spoke to our fathers through the prophets, in these last days he has spoken to us in his what? Son. In his Son. And the final word of God to man is Jesus Christ. And the word that he brings to us tonight is Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, he brings mercy and salvation. See that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they escaped not who refused him that spoke on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but the heaven also. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken. If he's going to do it only once more, then there ain't going to be nothing left after he does it. The removing of the things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, Receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. He's saying, listen, grace is available to you in the person of Christ. So receive grace at the hand of Christ, whereby we can serve him acceptably and in godly fear. And then he says, and know this, that our God is a consuming fire. The musicians can come as we uh, close out tonight. Interesting thing about fire, as God is likened unto fire. Any musicians here? Musicians? Mike? Calling? Mike? That's great. He's talking to Bobby. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Fire has the ability to destroy or refine or transform depending on what it is that's touching that fire. 
If it's something that's consumable, it's destroyed. If it's something that can be purified, it's refined. If it's something like iron, it can be transformed into hardened steel. Fire can also cleanse and renew the surface of things, like a forest fire. Fire can do many different things depending on where it's applied. It all depends on what material it touches. And there are areas of each one of our lives that need all four of those things. There's areas of our lives that need to be completely consumed and burned up and destroyed forever, right? God can do that. There's areas of our lives that need to be refined. There's precious things there, but there's also impurities that need to be burned off. Our God can do that. Our lives need to be transformed. There's things in us that are good, but they need to be changed into something better, something that only God can do. And there's things in our lives that need to be cleansed and renewed. And the Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. And the thing that will determine what part that fire plays within our lives is completely up to us. It's up to what we're going to allow of ourselves to be exposed to that fire. And the exhortation is this. Open your heart completely to God and let his fire completely consume our lives. Amen? Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And we ask, Lord, that as we take in what we've heard here, and not only this, but the whole span of the book thus far, we ask that we would have a fresh and renewed vision of Jesus Christ a fresh and renewed understanding and revelation of His grace, a fresh appreciation for Your mercies and Your love, and even, Lord, a fresh perspective concerning the discipline and the chastisement that You bring upon our lives. So tonight, Lord, we open ourselves completely to You. We ask, Lord, that we would hold nothing back from full exposure to what Your perfect knowledge, Your perfect fire can do within us. So hear us tonight, the condition of our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?